Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on July 17th, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... When I interviewed doctors of Yup's generation for this book, and I was just trying to understand more what it was like, they would say things to me like, well, you know, Seema, you know what it's like when you're on a ward and everyone's dying and you don't know why and you haven't got a treatment. That's Seema Yasmin. She's the Director of Research and Education at Stanford University's Stanford Health Communication Initiative. She's a physician and researcher. She practiced at a British hospital before becoming a disease detective with the U.S. CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Service. And she's also an award-winning journalist and the author of the book, The Impatient Dr. Lange, One Man's Fight to End the Global HIV Epidemic. Five years ago today, Dr. Langa, Joseph Langa, known to his friends as Yup, was aboard Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 on his way to a major HIV AIDS conference when pro-Russian rebels blew the plane out of the sky, murdering him and everyone else on board. Yasmin studied and worked with Lang. She recently visited our offices in New York City where we talked about the book and other public health issues. You made, I think, such a, an excellent choice, sadly, to start the book at the end of his life. Yeah, you know, I didn't want to write this book. The day that the plane attack happened and the day that Yup died, I was a newspaper writer at the Dallas Morning News and I was about to go on air to talk about my front page story about immigrant children crossing the border. And there were all these fears at the time that these kids were filthy. They were bringing in diseases. There was even one Georgia governor, I want to say, who said the kids are bringing in Ebola. Like, there is an Ebola in Central America. And this was a couple of years ago. This is 2014. It sounds so similar to what's happening now, right? we just heard some idiot get on TV and said they're bringing in smallpox, which, you know, it's so infuriating. For anybody who doesn't know, smallpox does not exist in the wild anymore. It's gone. It's been extirpated from the planet. Yeah, one of the feats of public health, right, is that we managed to eradicate smallpox. Go us. But we were hearing all this misinformation about these children. So I'd written this story. CNN picked it up and said, we want you to come on air and talk, I think, to Brooke Baldwin about these children and the fact that public health experts are saying they're not bringing diseases. In fact, the kids are more likely to pick up vaccine-preventable diseases here in America because vaccination rates are lower here than the countries they're coming from. So imagine I'm sitting on the chair. I've got my earpiece in. I'm all ready to go live on CNN. And then a producer says in my ear, you're off the hook. It's cancelled. We have breaking news. And I said, oh, okay, what happened? And she said, a jetliner has crashed over the Ukraine. And I thought, oh my gosh, that sounds awful. I remember that word she said, jetliner, because I don't use that word. And I was like, that's so strange. I went back to my desk and, you know, many newsrooms have TV screens absolutely everywhere. Anywhere I looked, I could just see this plane on fire. And reports that everybody was dead. And about half an hour later, I get a phone call from my mum saying that Yup Langer was on the plane. And I started crying in the middle of the newsroom and I was absolutely in shock. When you normally see bad news like that, it's horrible. It's sad, but it's removed. 
normally doesn't involve your small world. And in this case, this man who I knew, who was a mentor, who was my inspiration for going to med school when I was a teenager, who had possibly saved hundreds of thousands of lives. If not millions. Why? Who knows, right? And he was on his way to an international AIDS conference, leaving from his home in Amsterdam to fly to Australia, got on that plane with a few hundred other people. He was going to talk about a cure for HIV, which is what he had dedicated his life to. And he was killed. Along with four other people who were on the way to the conference. Possibly a few more too. It may have been about six or seven. Some people were actual scientists. Others were spokespeople for the World Health Organization. But yes, there was a group of these people leaving from Europe to go to this really big AIDS conference. This international AIDS conference happens every two years and it changes country and it can be about 20, 25,000 people sometimes gathering from all over the world, people living with HIV, scientists, sociologists, anthropologists. It's a really big deal, this conference. And in 2018, the conference was held in Amsterdam in Jupp's honor because he was such a rock star in HIV. He graduated med school when he was in 1981, the very same year that HIV emerged and started, the pandemic started. He possibly saw one of the first patients with HIV in the Netherlands. Didn't know it at the time, right? Because people back then, it was this medical mystery. They were trying to figure out why do these young men have these strange rashes that normally older Italian men have? And his career started then. And up until the moment that he died, he had been impatient in his fight against the epidemic, which is why my book is titled The Impatient, Dr. Langer. And you know, Steve, he was so different to a lot of other scientists and professors who also are really good at their job, but HIV became his life. And he wasn't always very polite about it. So scientists and professors, you know, when they're on stages with Nobel laureates and stuff, they mind their manners and they're well behaved. And Yup would swear at people if he thought they they needed to be sworn at, you know? If they said things that he thought were silly, he'd say, you're stupid. That's a silly thing to say. And it was like, who is this guy? But he was so refreshing because he spoke his mind. He didn't suffer fools gladly. And he was angry that we weren't doing enough and we weren't acting quickly enough to stop this epidemic. Yeah, I just want to also point out that his partner was seated with him. On the, the first plane. thing I thought of when my mum said Yup was on that plane, I said, oh, my gosh, how will Jacqueline survive? Because it didn't occur to me that she was with him and they were such lovebirds. They would look at each other across the crowded room. They were just this beautiful, literally beautiful couple too. And then I found out that she was sat next to him. And some of her friends, when I was interviewing them for this book, said things that made me a bit uncomfortable at the time, like, we're glad that she was with him. She would have wanted to die with him. So hard to hear, but it just spoke to how in love they were. And uh, I was referring to a previous incident where Jonathan Mann about 10 years earlier, had uh, 10 years earlier? Or it was in the from, 90s. It was in the 90s. Okay, so more like 15 or closer yeah. to 20. So I write but, about this in the book yeah. too, another horrific air traffic accident. In this case, it wasn't a terrorist attack. You know, Yup died on that plane because the plane was shot down in the summer of 2014 by pro-Russian rebels who shot a Buke ground-to-air missile thinking, perhaps, over over the Ukraine, that's where it landed, over this village. 
the rebels apparently, depending on which footage you see and which translations you look at, believe that they were firing at a military aircraft and were shocked that a civilian plane was flying through uh, the airspace of a conflict zone. And the flight that you're thinking about where Jonathan Mann, another scientist, died a few decades ago, that apparently was an electrical fault. And the plane that he was flying on from the States to Geneva had so many UN officials and diplomats on it. um, And they all died, too. Yeah. Just awful. But let's talk about the the more... What's the word? It's not happy, but the, the more positive parts of, of yeah. the book about his efforts and, and how much he did achieve. Which is why I wanted to write it. Yeah. You know, when I say I didn't want to write this, it's because I was asked soon after his death to write a book about his life. And I said, no, it's too soon and I'm too sad. And it didn't feel right. And then when I was asked again, I thought, as horrible as it is... It's such a tragedy to lose someone anyway, but to lose someone when they're that young, and I think 60s is young nowadays, and to lose them at the prime of their life and to lose them in a terrorist attack, it's tragic. And so, yes, let's have a book and let's celebrate this person. One of the messages I want to get across is even if you're not interested in HIV, I think the book will still interest you because I write about it for a general audience. But it's a book about leadership, too, and a book about what it's like to have someone who may not be the best at everything they do, but is the most committed and dedicated person. So there's leadership lessons in there for sure. Yeah, he just insisted on getting things accomplished. Even if that meant that he sometimes shouted at people. And I'm I'm not saying that you should emulate his style of leadership, like please don't make people cry. But I was fascinated, Steve, because when I was interviewing people for this, and remember I met him when I was 17, so he must have been like in his 40s or something. And I looked up to him and he was inspiring and he was really nice to me. He wasn't, I write in the book about other professors at the time would kind of look, down on me like who are you and why do you want to come to my lab but he was like you're interested sure come visit the Netherlands come learn virology in my lab he was like really open-minded and had open arms as well and I want people to realize that it's really important to mentor young people like that but there were other times where he would make people in his lab cry because he felt like they weren't doing things quickly enough or they were getting in his way or they weren't supporting his ideas enough and he was often had really big ideas he was one of those people But as I was saying, when I talked to some of his mentors, they would say things like, yeah, Yup was a good medical student. He wasn't the best. And then some of his science mentors would say, he was good in the lab. He wasn't the best. And I was like, okay, this is interesting because many of us think to really change the world, I've got to be a genius. I've got to be a saint. I've got to be flawless. And this is actually a bit of a wake-up call that you're not off the hook, just the thinking that, you know, you need to be so perfect. You don't have to be the smartest one in the room to be like, yup, he wasn't the smartest, but he got together the smartest people and he had the big ideas and he put in the work. And I think that's inspiring. And his father died relatively young, 52, I think it was. Yeah, so that was part of his impatience was his own belief that he might not live to a ripe old age just from natural causes. He was a bit paranoid about it. You know, his father's death really affected him. He was really a family man. And he had a kind of paranoia that he might die at that same age as his dad. I know some people that kind of think that too. Or, you know, when they pass the age that their parents died, it's significant. Mm -hmm. And so he did outlive his dad, but 
sadly, his life was still cut short. And, you know, you talk about starting with the ending. I teach storytelling and science journalism at Stanford. And I was telling my students about this because it's weird when you're writing a nonfiction book and everyone knows the ending already, right? They're picking up this book because they may have heard this man's name and they may just remember that horrible thing that happened in 2014, that terrorist attack and the plane crash and the nearly 300 people dead. But it's it's, I think, the right thing to do is to start with what we know and to start with this tragedy and say, okay, that happened. Let's move that to the side. And now let's really get deep into his life and celebrate his accomplishments. Yeah, it's a really good point. From a storytelling point of view, you don't want to spring that on the reader who doesn't know about it at the end. Oh, by the way, the book ends here because of this incident. Right. So, um, One of the things I think is really important about the book, especially for an American audience, is uh, we've had plenty of um, treatments of HIV and AIDS, the history, from the point of view of the United States. But this really talks about a lot of the things that went on in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, and how crucial that all was to all the developments that have turned AIDS from a death sentence when I was uh, in my early 20s and I had friends just dropping here in New York City. And um, now it's pretty much in in uh, developed countries, it's um, it's like a chronic condition. It should be, yes. Yeah. And for most people yeah. it is right. with access but, to meds. Right, yeah. exactly. And that's a really crucial point uh, about the relationship. And you talk about that a fair amount in the book. Uh, and you quote Jup about the relationship between poverty and disease. But let's talk about when he first started to see these patients and then how he got involved on the international stage to try to do something about it. And, and the, the decades that he spent not just trying to treat it, but trying to cure it. When I interviewed doctors of Yup's generation for this book, and I was just trying to understand more what it was like being a 24-year-old, newly qualified physician dealing with this new epidemic, they would say things to me like, well, you know, Seema, you know what it's like when you're on a ward and everyone's dying and you don't know why and you haven't got a treatment. And I was like, oh my God, I have no freaking idea what that is like. And I don't even ever want to know. I can't imagine that. You're, they were young men in their 20s and young women, right? And they have patients the same age or younger than them dying and kind of literally just degrading in front of them. Um, one of Yup's former friends and former colleagues described these young men that would be on gurneys lining up um, against the wall of the ward and they would just have nonstop diarrhea in their 20s and would ask, please, can you put me out of my misery and kill me? And sometimes they did. 
because euthanasia was allowed. But that was not the kind of medicine that these young physicians were expecting to practice in their first few years. Can you imagine? I find that so harrowing. And I really hope that we are never faced with an epidemic or a pandemic of that kind again. But that urgency is what led Yup to believe that being a physician wasn't enough for him and that he had to be a scientist as well. He believed that it wasn't enough to fight HIV with a stethoscope and with x-rays, that it needed to be fought under a microscope in the lab. And so he balanced these two things, being a physician and being a scientist. And that's what led him to go work in Africa. And that really, really changed him. Being exposed to the epidemic in Africa shifted his perspective. Because once we had HIV meds in the mid to late 90s, that changed the epidemic in Europe, right? Yup could give his patients these medicines. Then he would take a trip to East Africa and he would work on a, a, a clinical trial in Uganda. And he described working in hospitals where he would step over bodies of women and children who were dying because they didn't have the same meds. And like I said to you, he was so outspoken that that got him in trouble because when he then went back to practice medicine in his clinic in Amsterdam and his patients who were on HIV meds would say, Dr. Langer, I'm I'm taking the meds, but I get such bad cramps and I've got diarrhea and I've got really bad headache. And Yup would say, so what? Be grateful. You've got the meds. And doctors aren't really supposed to talk to their patients like that. And some of them who loved him understood it and others just didn't want to be spoken to like that by a doctor. And they went to his boss and said, I want a new doctor. And so they did get a new doctor. But that experience in Africa really, really shifted the way he looked at the epidemic and he saw it as injustice. And so as he got deeper into his career, even though he always worked on HIV and he was really more focused on a cure in later years as well, He also decided that it wasn't enough just to fight HIV and that he had to fight poverty. And that's why he then had some other initiatives working on that. One of the fascinating stories in your book that I didn't know was the the fact that so much of uh, the treatment availability that was made to African patients was due to the fact that big companies would fund it so that their workforce wouldn't die. They might argue with me a little bit for framing it like that because Uh they'd say, well, we're humanitarians as well and we are Heineken and Coca-Cola and we want to make sure. And I believe that. But you can't ignore the business side of it. I mean, the Heineken story that I talk about in the book where Yup and his team worked with the the Dutch beer company to make sure that their workforce in Rwanda um, got medication. Yes, that was a good thing to do. But from a business perspective, if you don't do that, if you're Heineken and you don't give medical treatment, one, you're going to lose your workforce because they're just going to die of AIDS. And two, you're going to lose your market because everyone there is also being affected by this infection. So to me, it was good that they were doing it. I don't know if I would give them a medal because it's kind of a Mm no-brainer that you should be doing that. Um, Just uh, let's tell everybody just how prevalent the infection was in these places. It changed the demographics of some of these sub-Saharan African countries. During the 80s and 90s, you were left with countries that were kind of missing a middle generation. So you had young children, often termed AIDS orphans, looked after by their grandparents because their parents had died of HIV AIDS. 
it completely changed the way that these societies looked, the way that families looked. And it's improved a lot because we do have treatments and we've had huge and amazing programs like PEPFAR from the US government that's funded treatments. We still have too many people that don't have access to treatment. And a few years ago, I lost a friend to AIDS and he was in his 20s and he lived in London where we have free medical treatment. You know, all of it is free. It just shows how complicated this is. And the thing that has always fascinated me about HIV since I was a kid wasn't just that you have this interesting virus that came out of nowhere and mutates and does these phenomenal things. It's that this microscopic virus has this massive impact and it has this shame attached to it. And my friend died because he was really embarrassed and didn't want to be taking the meds and didn't want to be HIV positive. And that's how he got an age-related disease. Yeah. In the book, you talk about the shame factor with women in sub-Saharan Africa who did not want to be seen bottle-feeding their babies because that was a clue to the rest of their society that they were HIV positive. It was a dead giveaway, right? Yeah. If you're not breastfeeding, why aren't you breastfeeding? It raised suspicions and also just really deep cultural beliefs and traditions that breastfeeding is what you do. And one of the studies that Yup worked on was finding out which medicine can we give a woman during pregnancy so that if she's HIV positive, she can give birth to a baby that does not have HIV. And he was really proud of working on that study. And what happened was, obviously, you monitor the kids, right, as they're born. And at a day old, at a month old, at two months old, you're like, amazing. The mum has HIV. We gave the mum these specific meds. Now the baby does not have HIV. And as they kept tracking, they were like, what's happening? These babies are becoming HIV positive. They were not born HIV positive. And that's when we learned that HIV was also transmitted through infected breast milk. And that's why we needed treatment so that you could give the mum a medicine while she was breastfeeding. And then she could continue breastfeeding because it was too hard in some parts of the world to even say, please do consider using formula because the water was so bad that that would kill the baby. And then it we ended up in a situation where people were doing both breastfeeding and using formula. And actually, that combination really irritated the baby's gut and made them more susceptible to infection with HIV. So these are some of the discoveries that he was on teams that discovered and he was working to combat these. He was also involved in this really interesting study that proved a point that he had about the fact that treatment of one person was prevention for other people. And there were these couples that he recruited for a study where one member of the couple was HIV positive. Yeah, so if one person in a relationship is positive and the other is negative and you want to make sure that it stays that way, right, the negative person doesn't become infected, what Yup and others, many others that he was working with across the world, they discovered this phenomenon, treatment as prevention, they called it TAP. And it was the idea that if you have HIV, but you're taking the right meds and you're taking them properly and you're getting good medical care, the amount of virus in your blood should be undetectable. It should be almost zero, if not zero. And therefore, even if you're having unprotected sex with your partner, you won't be passing on any HIV. And that's why treatment for HIV was a public health goal. It wasn't just about you get better and you don't develop AIDS. It was also we can stop transmission of this infection if we really treat everybody well. 
because there were people who were against this idea for some reason of treatment as prevention. They didn't think it was a, a viable kind of plan. There's always detractors, right? And in this case, I think people were also worried that it might encourage unprotected sex where there shouldn't be. And of course, the issue always is that, yes, you might be preventing transmission of HIV, but what about other infections? So yes, that's important. But really, anything that we can do that can stop a person transmitting HIV to another person is really important. Yeah, the, the public health, you know, the population-wide um, kinds of tactics are so fascinating. I, I don't think you go into it in the book, but years ago we were talking about uh, in Scientific American how you could actually drive the evolution of HIV by condom use because you would effectively select for HIV strains that did not quickly kill patients because of uh, extra partner um, interactions where um, you had to be long enough lived to actually pass on your HIV if you were pretty uh, pretty good about condom use so that you survived for a while and all those condom interactions uh, didn't pass it along. So if you slipped up, then you might pass something along, but you were one of the people for whom HIV didn't kill you in just a few months. Because if those people were using condoms, they died before they had a chance to pass it on. So I always found that stuff fascinating. It is. I mean, the virus itself, right, is so interesting because it mutates so quickly. Even within one person. Even within one person. And the terrible thing about that is that if a person's on meds, but they don't have access to them or they're not taking them in the way that we would like them to take the meds, the, the virus becomes resistant because it's so brilliant, I think it's fair to say. And it's constantly shifting and thinking, not thinking really, but it's constantly shifting and deciding what version of itself is the one that can evade all the meds. That means though, if one person becomes resistant to medicines, they can then pass on a version of the virus to somebody who's never ever touched an HIV med, but is already at the beginning of their infection resistant. And that's really tricky. And it's why we're always looking for new meds as well. Sometimes when a person, you know, in HIV medicines, we group them into different classes. Sometimes a person becomes resistant to one medicine, it makes them resistant to a lot of other ones in that class because they kind of work in similar ways. And when that resistant virus gets passed on, it's so difficult to treat. And so... All the, that, that's one of the keys to how HIV has been fought for the last couple of decades or more than that, even let's say 30 years, is just come at it from every possible angle. Yeah. It's such a wily virus that we have to have as much in our armament as possible and still really be talking about prevention, you know, not getting people infected in the first place. And I really worry about this because I think we have lost the urgency around the HIV epidemic. I think we have a generation that didn't grow up with scary commercials or didn't grow up like you did, just like losing friends, right? And that's a real wake-up call. If you haven't had that, and if the only messaging you're hearing is that HIV is a manageable chronic disease, as it should be, that might lead you to behaviors that expose you to HIV because you don't think it's something that can affect you. And I worry sometimes that we talk about HIV stats as if they're just these broad overall stats. So for example, over the last few years in the States, HIV diagnoses have been going down about 5% every year. Really good. It should be going down even more, but I'm glad it's going down. Except that's not in every age group. 
And actually, HIV diagnoses are going up in the 25 to 34-year-old age group. Mm -hmm. So I worry that we talk about it as if it's one epidemic. I think about it, and I want us talking about it as separate epidemics mm -hmm. because it's doing different things in different groups and talking about it as if we've got our hands on this epidemic and we're in control and we're fighting it is clearly leading to 25 to 34-year-olds thinking, mm, don't have to worry about HIV so much. And then older adults too. I think about half of all HIV diagnoses in America in 2015 were in people over the age of 55. And nowadays, one in four Americans living with HIV is over the age of 50. Some of them because they've aged into that, which is great. You should be on meds and you should be living a long life with HIV. But some of them, as I've written about before in newspaper stories, because they're becoming infected in their 50s and 60s. We're seeing rates of syphilis and chlamydia going right. up too. And I want to call out the public health community because we act as if people don't have sex in their 50s. When I was writing one of these newspaper articles, I was looking for some stats around sexual health and older people, found this World Health Organization report looking at sex and sexuality. And they surveyed people up until the age of 49 as if you stop having sex when you get to 50. And it's not true. Older adults have a lot of sex. I've treated some of them for, let's call them sex mishaps in the ER. And they're in their 70s and 80s. Oh, I have so many interesting stories about sex mishaps among older people. But they're sexually active. They're human. So why aren't we also thinking about HIV with them and educating them and giving them the tools they need to protect themselves? I really wish we would get rid of this notion that people stop having sex when they get to 50 because that's not the truth. We're always seeing these articles about uh, STDs running rampant through nursing homes. Yeah, it really. There are outbreaks sometimes. Yep, syphilis has gone up extraordinarily. Chlamydia and gonorrhea too. Those rates have gone up. Of course, once you have those infections, your risk of becoming infected with HIV increases too. And for older older people in general, your immune system is not as robust when you know as when you were a young person. And in women, the vagina changes in ways that also makes you know thinner mucous membranes, drier. All of that stuff makes you more vulnerable to HIV. So. I don't want us thinking we just have a handle on this epidemic because there are these groups. Black Americans are, are bear the brunt, the burden of HIV infection, men who have sex with men, this 25 to 34-year-old age group I'm really worried about, and then older adults too. We're still fighting HIV. Some fascinating parts of the book go into how uh, various people in Africa and in Asia uh, really resented the idea of clinical trials using them when in the first world, the initial trials are on animals. So they were like, what are we, your animal subjects? And then after we show that something works, you get to use it on people? Yeah, the ethics of clinical trials are really interesting. And I there's a whole chapter in the book about clinical trials in Cambodia and in Western Africa that were for actually those stories are specifically about a treatment called uh, PEP, so PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, where you can take a medicine and it prevents you from getting infected with HIV. But as you said, people there, the sex workers that were going to be experimented on were like, Why? Why us? There are many people who are at risk of HIV. Why have you come here to test out your medicines? And 
Uh, are you going to give us your medicines for free afterwards? Because we can't afford them. They raised really important ethical questions. And HIV has changed the way that we practice medicine, you know. It's changed the way that we test medicines. It's changed the way that we advertise medicines. So much stuff happened within the context of the HIV epidemic as if it was on fast forward before it would take years to get a drug from the lab to the patient's mouth. With HIV, activists came in and said, this ain't good enough. We are dying from this infection and you are being too slow, Food and Drug Administration. You need to approve this medicine now. And so things really changed. That also raised difficult, thorny questions about how to approve medicines. Should they have always been approved that quickly? Who do we test them on? Who gets the medicines for free after that? Um, so I really found it fascinating writing that part of the book. And you also talk about the run-ins that Langa had with some of the activists. Yeah, because he would get annoyed at everyone. You know, he was he was politically incorrect. So even that whole Heineken story, which is amazing, right? This massive Dutch brewing company is going to give medicines and healthcare to their staff. But to be a doctor pairing up with a corporation, that wasn't like the right thing to do. It wasn't considered the right thing to do. But he was like, screw that. This is important. We need to save lives. So he worked with Heineken. That didn't mean that he was ever above pointing fingers at anyone. He would call out drug companies and tell them terrible things about themselves. But it also meant that even though he considered himself an activist and many activists would agree with that, sometimes he got annoyed at them too and said, what are you doing? We're trying to test these medicines and you're getting in the way. And... There were there were lots of um, heads butting against one another. Yeah, uh, just want to bring up the uh, the part of the book where, uh, you know, we we in the states, well, we in the uh, the the people in positions of power, especially in the early days of the Reagan administration, they just it, it would have been better if they had done nothing mm. than what a lot of times they did do, which was. Um, just sort of get in the way, get in the way of anybody doing anything. There was Jerry Falwell. I mean, he wasn't in the administration, but he might as well have been yeah. talking about, uh, you know, this is God's wrath on the abomination of homosexuality. Oh, and then there was uh, Pat Buchanan, who was a big player in the in the right wing. They politics. derailed the response. They derailed the response. Yes, they rate. did. They didn't, you know, like I say, if they had just done nothing, it probably would have been more constructive. And then. When Bob Gallo, mm. uh, who and that's a whole story about power grabs in the world of science, uh, because there had to be you know a lot of legal action before Luc Montagnier got credit. Oh for, my God! Such a big fight over the discovery of HIV. Fight. So messy. Presidents had to get involved. President to of, say yeah, and the U.S. To make sure everybody got the credit they were doing. Big egos, big lawsuits. But it was when it looked like an American was going to get the credit for characterizing HIV. Oh, yes. And, and realizing then. that it was the causal agent. Then all of a sudden the uh, the administration was, was proud of our yeah. HIV research. Absolutely embarrassing and shameful. You know, it took the president about five years to even mention AIDS. And in the meantime, we have thousands of Americans dying, young, old men, women, you know, across the board, complete denial. But at the same time, 
getting in the way of the freaking science as people are trying to respond to this epidemic. You know, the reason I came, moved to America in 2011 was to work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I was in the Epidemic Intelligence Service. And one of the like the things I would geek out over was meeting my peers who were in the Epidemic Intelligence Service in 1981. The ones who went to San Francisco, New York and LA, the ones who were moving up and down the streets and going into bathhouses and asking men, who have you had sex with and do you remember their names? And some of the things that they tell you are just horrible in terms of how the administration hindered them doing their job. They would write reports about what they were learning and trying to piece together the information, sending out alerts to doctors across the country, right? Like be aware of this and get in touch if any patients of yours have these signs and symptoms. And Oftentimes, their reports would land on their boss's desk and their boss would look at it and say, I'm going to have to cross out everywhere it says homosexual men. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how can you deal with an epidemic that at the beginning was primarily affecting men who had sex with men without talking about the risk factor? And that's what politics can do. That's how politics can really harm scientific progress. And oh, my gosh, aren't we seeing that again? (laughs) You know, so I'm a white guy. Are you? <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> you know, you're very white. In America, I'm uh, well. I don't know anymore. As a as a Jew, am I white? You're white presenting. Yeah, you right. walk through the world as a white man. Exactly, yes. I'm white presenting. That's right. Um, yeah, I've been I've been aware of that for a long time. I always say to people, the Klan doesn't think I'm white. That's good enough for me. Oh I ain't white. <laughs> but yes, I get to present as white and enjoy a lot of the. Benefits until they find out I'm a Jew. But anyway, so I walk around the world as a white guy. And when I see, you know, medical professionals want to uh, try to intervene in a case, but there are uh, some segments of the society that don't trust them, you know, that seems crazy to me until I remember that if you're an African-American and you know about the Tuskegee experiments – Why wouldn't you have doubts about, especially if it's coming from the government, which has lied to you repeatedly? And hurt you. And hurt you. Yeah. You know, they. You're speaking my language. This is exactly what my second book is about. I've almost finished writing it. It's called Debunked, and it's about medical conspiracy theories and about medical myths. And I have a lot of time, a lot of empathy for people that do believe these conspiracy theories, which isn't the, the stance that a lot of physicians take. But here's why I take that position and why I take the time to really carefully debunk and dissect these myths and say, here's the truth. The reason I take that time and I have that empathy is because if you are a black person, if you are a brown person, you have many, many reasons to not trust doctors, to not trust the medical establishment, to not trust the government. So my book started off as a popular weekly column in the newspaper when I wrote for the Dallas Morning News. And it would be things like, are chemtrails poisonous? And do vaccines cause autism? And with things like chemtrails, if people wrote into me with that question, asking me, what is the stuff that comes out the back end of planes? And I think it's the government trying to poison us. Well, I can say that's not true. Let me tell you, it's unburned jet fuel and condensation and all these other things I can tell you about. But I understand why you might think the government is trying to poison you. Because if you live in Flint, Michigan and you're a black person and you're a poor black person, then you're 
water that comes out of your tap is not safe to drink. If you were a person living in DC in the early 2000s, there was so much lead coming out of your tap water that there were two outbreaks of miscarriages in DC. And the government and the CDC, who I used to work for, weren't very transparent about that. It took the Washington Post, you know, hey, journalism, good old journalism. It took the Washington Post and some academics to do the research to say, this is really bad and we need some answers from the government. So there's a whole culture of distrust. And I use the word distrust and not mistrust because distrust is when your mistrust is based on history and it's based on context. And my goodness, that has real world implications now. Just 2016, there was a TB outbreak in Alabama. Uh, a tuberculosis outbreak, really bad one. We should not be seeing those kinds of TB outbreaks now. And I write about this in my book, my forthcoming book too. And I got a bit annoyed at the time of this outbreak because public health officials were kind of whining a little bit. We're giving $20 incentives to come and get tested. No one's coming to get tested. And I'm like, just look on Google Maps. Look where this TB outbreak is happening. It's about a two-hour drive or just less to Tuskegee. And if you are a black person in Alabama, and I've heard this from people living there, even if you weren't alive when Tuskegee happened, your family members told you about what happened in Tuskegee. And it wasn't that long ago. It ended in the 70s. And that was government doctors working for the public health service, not treating African-American men who had syphilis with the cure that was available then. And my book talks about how many different examples. Tuskegee often comes to mind first for many people. There are so many examples of black people, especially people of color, poor people, people with mental health problems being experimented on, being treated like guinea pigs. And that's why to this day, we often don't have as many people of color in clinical trials as we want. And we like to moan about that in the medical profession. I think we need to stop moaning and we need to start apologizing and we need to start confronting the past and making amends. And we can't do that without looking at history and saying, oh, these communities have real reasons to not trust the government and to not trust doctors. Right. And we are definitely not saying, oh, I can understand why somebody wouldn't want to vaccinate their kids and, and I I support their uh, decision no. not to. Please no. vaccinate your children. Yes, absolutely. But Steve, look what happened in Minnesota last year. Minnesota had its biggest outbreak of measles in 30 years. Awful. So heartbreaking. And the majority of the kids in that measles outbreak were Somali children. And it turns out that since 2008, anti-vaccine groups, I think the Organic Consumers Association, they're called, which sounds very innocent and like they would just tell you to eat more broccoli or something. And Andrew Wakefield, the terrible British doctor who started this whole thing, they had been really cleverly targeting the Somali-American community in Minnesota. And they were smart about it. And I say that because the Somali community back then and still had questions about autism diagnoses. And they their questions were questions that all of us were asking. Why has autism increased? Why are there more autism diagnoses? The state health department in my opinion, wasn't doing enough to provide answers. Maybe they were hedging their bets and saying they didn't have the answers yet and the science was still, you know, being done and there wasn't evidence to say exactly why. Well, it didn't matter because that community had questions and the anti-vaccine groups that came in gave them answers. 
They yeah. filled that vacuum. They filled that void. So they, the anti-vaccine groups, did a better job at spreading their message than we in the public health community have done of spreading our message. So to a Somali mum in that community, I would have no issue of blame if we're even talking blame about why you didn't vaccinate your kid. I completely understand why she would not. I blame us for not getting in there and for not being as good as focusing on messages and really targeting people and saying measles is deadly. Measles can kill children. It's not mild. And the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine is safe. We need to do a better job of that. What are the uh, the folks like Wakefield at this point or this group? What are they getting? I mean, how do you make money lying about the vaccines? Andrew Wakefield, after he did his unethical studies where he then said that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine causes autism, and it turned out to all be fraudulent. He had financial investments in single-dose vaccines. Right. And his research, when you look at what he did to those little children, he was doing like colonoscopies and all sorts of, gosh, t- taking blood from kids at a children's birthday party. It was really bad science. And we should say it took the journal ages to retract it. Mm-hmm. He lost his license in England, which is pretty hard to do that, you know, as a doctor. He lost his license. He cannot practice medicine in England. So guess what he did? He moved to America. And he's really popular here. He has a job. I think he's dating a supermodel, which scared me because the headlines were like, now he has a whole different sphere of influence. And I was like, oh, my gosh, the last thing we need is more Hollywood types becoming anti-vaccine and, you know, spreading that message because they're really influential people. But he has the ear of the president. He has the ear of some powerful people who are saying really inaccurate, misguided things about vaccines. But their messages have a bigger reach than ours do sometimes. And that's why we're seeing these outbreaks of measles, and not just in the States, but in South America. We're seeing them all across Europe. It's a really, really bad time now. And I worry about children, especially those really young children who are too young to get vaccinated, kids with cancer who are on chemo. Those are the ones who are especially at risk. Well, we've gone far afield from the actual book, but I think these are important subjects and you're an expert in them. So it's good that we we talk about them. I just want to read a quote from the book. This quote of of, uh, Lange is related to everything we've just been talking about. He said, of all the ills that kill the poor, none is as lethal as bad government. Bad government and lack of leadership has actually killed more people with HIV than anything else. It's just, you know, we see it, we've seen it now with Ebola. When we saw the outbreaks in Africa here in the U.S. and saw things like 85, 90% fatality rates, we figured Ebola is an almost universally fatal infection. And then we had people who got infected and came to the U.S. and got treated in U.S. hospitals, and all of a sudden, Ebola was a treatable condition because they had clean water and they had uh, hydration and they had attention by professionals instead of dying in their homes without any care of dehydration and massive bleeding. And all of a sudden, you realize it's a condition of poverty as well. When you don't have the resources for the medical attention that is required to treat this condition, then it's fatal. But if you have first world medicine, which a lot of the first world doesn't have, but if you have it at your disposal, 
here in New York, I mean, there was that doctor who was uh, treated here in New York. I forget his name, but, you know, he had gone bowling while he was uh, Ebola positive, And then he was uh, sequestered for a week in the hospital. And he came out, he was fine. He was riding a bicycle in his hotel room, in his hospital room. We had to rewrite the textbooks because suddenly Ebola was being treated, right? As you said, in Western hospitals. And with Ebola, some of what you have to do is really simple medicine, actually. It's electrolytes and it's measuring those things and it's getting in good IV lines. And that stuff was not happening for African patients. And it was happening for white people who were going to help and then coming back and had Ebola. And suddenly we were like, oh, we're going to have to change the textbooks and say that the case fatality rate is quite different. But you know that quote you read out, it really makes me miss Yup. And it makes me think, what a loss. Because even though he was a rock star in HIV and people, he wasn't a household name, he was such an important voice. And he did, by the time he was in his 50s, have the ear of really important people around the world. And he was persuasive. And he knew that it wasn't just about tackling HIV and it wasn't just about tackling Ebola. It was about tackling poverty. That's the risk factor for many of these diseases. It was recently announced that four Russians will go on trial in absentia next year for shooting down flight MH17, but they probably will never truly face justice for the deaths of Dr. Langa and 297 other people killed five years ago today. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you'll find lots of material about a happier anniversary this week, the 50th, since Apollo 11 put two guys on the moon. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 